0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Malcolm Keating. Today we'll be talking to Priyambada Sarkar, author of Language, Limits, and Beyond, Early Wittgenstein and Rabindranath Tagore, published in 2021 by Oxford University Press. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy, Priyambada.
2: Thank you so much, Malcolm. Uh, it's uh, great to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
1: Well, I'm really looking forward to talking with you. Uh, Let me start by asking you my first question. What is your book's main goal, and why did you think it was important to write?
2: Uh, Well, uh, the primary uh, goal or the primary aim of my book is to point out that uh, that despite innumerable differences uh, in in the intellectual makeups in belonging to two different modernities uh, these two intellectual uh, geniuses and creative geniuses tagore and wittgenstein uh, they had uh, they had some uh, striking parallels in their thoughts about about the limits of language, about the limits of the world, and the distinction between sense and nonsense or the expressible and the inexpressible uh, in their writings. And uh, my goal was to show that uh, more sense can be made of uh, Wittgenstein's cryptic writings, early writings, cryptic writings on these things uh, where he is talking about the identity of ethics, aesthetics and religion on the one hand and he's talking about that something some important things uh, you cannot state it in you cannot represent it in ordinary terms all these uh, cryptic things which have generated lots and lots of controversies uh, much more sense can be made of these remarks if uh, if these views are juxtaposed with the writings of Tagore, uh, regarding all these issues so this is the this is more or less the fundamental aim of the text uh, yes now you might you might think that uh, why is this juxtaposition important well okay uh, the poet says uh, so and so and the uh, philosopher says such and such but they and they overlap in their thinking but uh, why is it important it is important it is important in a in a very fundamental sense And this fundamental sense is that there are some perennial issues in philosophy about life and world, where we can see the concurrence of concerns, uh, not philosophical agreements or disagreements, but concurrence of concerns of the poet and the philosopher. And such overlapping uh, is important. Such overlapping is important because it points to the reader to look into this, uh, to go deep into this bigger picture where the meaning of life and world is connected with ethics aesthetics and religion and it also gives rise to various important uh, questions whether the meaning of uh, meaning of uh, like leading a good truthful and compassionate leaving does it add a value a purpose meaning to our existence in this universe so it, and, uh, another important thing, which I want to mention here, that my reference to Tagore is not intended to mean that Wittgenstein was uh, uh, inspired by him or he was following uh, Tagore in, uh, in these respects. I didn't say this, I I cannot claim this because I have not seen any evidence of acknowledgement or indebtedness. So what I intend to point out is that despite their differences in their outlooks, in their ultimate goals, in their methodologies, they somehow arrived at the same conclusion. They go through literature and Wittgenstein through logic and this fundamental thing where they where they uh, in fact converged is that uh, both of them believed that there is a limit to the expressibility of words in a language but this portraying of the limits that this existence of the limits is not ultimate. One can really uh, transgress these limits, or can peep into the beyond, not in a direct manner. That is not possible, but in an indirect manner, through through bending of meanings, through suggestiveness, as in a in a poem, in a work of art, uh, and in and in music where you can apprehend the unutterable, which you cannot utter sensibly in your ordinary language.
1: Mm-hmm. Right, and and so you're looking at the early Wittgenstein and his Tractatus, and you're looking at Rabindranath Tagore's corpus, which of course is quite, quite vast. Uh, so I'm curious, how did you come to be interested in the topic in these two philosophers, thinkers, a poet and a philosopher, rather?
2: Uh, well, uh, in fact, uh, I, I got, uh, in fact, I was uh, struck. Um, I was struck by, by this, uh, by the similarity. I didn't even imagine at the time uh, but uh, I got carried away first by reading Raymond's Monk's uh, book on Wittgenstein uh, where, he, uh, where, where he narrated, I think, uh, <coughs> around five, uh, seven, eight pages Wittgenstein and Tagore uh, um, relationship. In fact, I was motivated by those writings first. And uh, before that, when I uh, got introduced to the philosophy of Wittgenstein in my master's class, uh, then then also, then it struck me that um, he was reading poems from *Gitanjali* when asked uh, when asked um, to elucidate the important questions of the *Tractatus* in, uh, in, in 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 the Vienna circle. Uh, as probably you all uh, you all you all must be knowing about it, so I'll not elaborate. But uh, I really uh, I was um, astounded. I was uh, intrigued, and um, by this correlation. And later, when Raymond uh, wrote uh, in detail, not in very many details, but at least he hinted about. Uh, Wittgenstein's translation of the King of the Dark Chamber uh, in English along with Smythi's in his later years and uh, before he gave his lectures on uh, psychology, religious, aesthetic psychology and religious belief in 1937 uh, he again he read Raja uh, twice along with Smythi's before he gave this lecture but uh, I haven't really, I haven't yet explored uh, the possibility of parallels with uh, Tagore uh, in his later writings, uh, where he almost discarded his earlier notion of of sense and nonsense, which somehow corresponds with the uh, sayability saying and showing. Uh, but yet, I've noticed that He has written, uh, he has uh, said in some of his conversations uh, that um, philosophical investigations is also uh, like a poem, like one should treat it like a poem. But I haven't explored it yet.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this, this is an interesting point that Wittgenstein will get into this characterized the Tractatus as, as a work of literature. Uh, so that we'll, we'll return to that in a minute. But let's back up a little bit, because while most listeners know Wittgenstein, they may not know Rabindranath Tagore, the, at least the listeners of the philosophy podcast. Can you start by saying who Tagore is? And of course, just situate him who Wittgenstein is as well.
2: Oh well, i I've, I forgot to tell you in in your um, earlier uh, question that uh, one of my aims also uh, too was to um, to the readers like those uh, who do not who are not at all familiar with the oeuvre of Pégaz's writings, uh, they can uh, they can approach him through Wittgenstein. And the people who who are who know only works of Tagore, they can also approach Wittgenstein through Tagore, and uh, uh, I have I have uh, tried I have tried attempted that in my uh, book. Now to uh, to be specific, uh, to talk about the philosophy of Tagore. Uh, is difficult. Why? Because uh, he was reluctant to call himself a philosopher. He was happy. He was comfortable. uh, He was comfortable with the poet tag. He said, I'm poet. I'm happy. I'm uh, I'm happy with it. And I don't want to philosophize. He said this and No wonder his contemporaries, uh, his contemporaries and also commentators, they were also um, uh, like they did not differ. They also agreed with this. So it's uh, really after so many, many years, uh, you hardly could find a proper uh, philosophy abstracted from his uh, from his writings. and but uh, if one studies, if one reads his book, his uh, mainly his letter works carefully, he can find he can find him to be a unique a philosopher, a unique philosopher having all the systems like ontology, epistemology, axiology, ethics and also philosophy of language so one will have to uh, have to he didn't say that this is something which will go to my ontology or my epistemology represents this he did not write but with a careful eye you can see this that one follows from the other and uh, one can build an unique system of philosophy which is uh, not really, some people dismiss Tagore's philosophy by saying that uh, here we find the philosophy of the Upanishads and that's all. No, that is not the truth. His own uniqueness is uh, is visible in his writings and one can, as I said, one can uh, have his views on each of these branches, his own philosophical views about these, and uh, I have attempted a bit in this text. And I must say that let others. This is an unexplored mine, so let others come and do it better. Quote and <laughs> but this is a, this is this can be a huge project where one can uh, go and uh, reflect and which has its uh, uses even today in contemporary philosophy. Now, uh, coming to the basic things, as I, as I said that uh, usually people uh, do away with his philosophy by saying that it's the philosophy of Upanishads and also say that he was influenced by Vaishnavism or, or some uh, Western um, commentators, they say that, uh, according to them, that it's a new form of Christianity. Now, what I want to uh, uh, show that these three, like he, um, he was totally immersed in the philosophy of Upanishads. This is also half truth. He was influenced by vaishnava philosophies. That is also half truth, and Christianity. Of course, he had. He said um, in the many of his interviews that uh, his Lord of Life comes very close to uh, New Testament concept of God. But in spite of that, one can see his own uniqueness in his philosophy. Now he was, he was born. He was born as a Brahmo. In a, in a very uh, uh, elite cultured family, and there he was induced into Brahmo uh, It's a, a monotheistic uh, religion developed on the philosophy of the Upanishads. He was initiated into it. In fact, he disbursed his duties as secretary of Brahmo Shamaj uh, quite vigorously. So people can think in that line, but he was later disillusioned. He felt that the authority of man, the authority of man, gets carved, carved by the existence of religion, not only by the existence of religion, but also by tradition, by custom, by scripture and also by rituals so he didn't really uh, he didn't really want to uh, want to get himself uh, get himself tagged to be a member of any particular religion at that time uh, at that time he was uh, he was moved to some extent to uh, hindu dharma when he was establishing the school at shantiniketan there he once uh, he wrote to to the headmaster that uh, nothing which is uh, not written in Shanghita will be practiced in my school so at the time he was under the impression that uh, this hindu religion is not an institutionalized religion but later also later he uh, he understood he understood, he had some uh, bad experiences and he understood and then he distanced himself from uh, Hindu dharm And then he was influenced by Vaishnava uh, lyrics, Vaishnava in, uh, lyrics, but he was not totally a Vaishnavite because he used to believe, oh, right, another important point that he did not believe in the philosophy of upanishads because he did not believe the world is an illusion he believed that uh, this uh, he is enjoying this color taste and and the beautiful uh, beauty of of nature of this world so he doesn't want liberation uh, he doesn't want liberation and
1: Right, so he's like. Um, let's let's maybe move a little bit back to Wittgenstein too, because this seems like there's some connections here that you're that you're drawing, and I want to make sure that we're getting sort of to interweave as you do do excellently in the book, interweave Tagore with 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 Wittgenstein. So um, Tagore, yeah. So you were just saying Tagore is a, a is a poet. He's philosophically inclined. Uh, and Wittgenstein is a, is a poetic philosopher in some ways, right? Um, so maybe can we also move back to the Tractatus, talk about how that's important, and then we can go back to Tagore g- again as well?
2: Uh, Yes, I have not. uh, I have not yet. Um, That's true that I spent a bit of long time in in elucidating this, that what he is not. But what he is, where we can find similarities, that he uh, in his ontology, he distinguished between fact and truth. Now, uh, as far as his notion of fact is concerned, uh, we understand it uh, quite well. It's something if SSP then the fact will be that it that s is p so there is no it, it's, it uh, goes uh, along with the view of the of the tractators that um, uh, fact is something which can be stated objectively scientifically then he talked about truth his notion of truth is is uh, is quite um, it's it's complicated and it's controversial also. But to sum it up, uh, his notion of truth, his notion of truth is something which is uh, interconnected with the whole universe. It's not uh, a truth of a particular thing. It's actually uh, it's actually. When a scientist or an ordinary person talks about something, talks about a fact of the world, he thinks that is an abstraction. Why is it an abstraction? Because uh, it has been truncated. We have uh, separated it from the whole of the world to which it is also related. Like uh, think of uh, physiology as a science it's a science of human body so it is objective scientific objective knowledge because you can teach uh, you can teach someone and someone can learn from you but he says this is not the whole truth if a doctor operates on his child he treats his child's body as simply a body not as his son then Tagore would say he is not having the whole truth whole truth is that uh, whole truth? Whole truth will encompass first that he is uh, the child is his son. So in all interrelationships, all facts are correlated, and uh, usually we don't uh, we don't uh, um, apprehend this. Uh, we are all happy in our cocoons, uh, but when the when uh, this. Uh, barrier sometimes in some uh, experience in some mystical experience experience of the whole this barrier is gone this barrier is lifted then you can feel that you are identical with the whole of the world then you can uh, you can you can you feel that uh, you are just a member of all other things of the universe and you all are related to everything in this universe and this is the truth so for him i don't know how far uh, um, i could make you understand but the thing is ultimate truth is the truth of relationship and the truth of harmony in the universe and this is the fundamental principle of creation now this relation, now this distinction between fact and truth, it in his epistemology, it takes the place of science and art. Art with capital A, which includes uh, music, dance, uh, music, dance, artists, art, sculpture, everything, everything under with capital R. the art apprehends truth. And science deals with facts. And uh, he says that scientist. what does the scientist want? The scientist seeks an impersonal principle which can be applied to all things, natural laws. In contrast with that, the artist finds out the unique, the individual, but yet it is in the heart of the universal. So artist is apprehending truth, but not, not the scientists. And in uh, ethics, in ethics, this distinction uh, he uh, draws a distinction between sreo and preo. That is, uh, what is desired and what ought to be desired. What is desired comes under fact science, and what ought to be desired comes under under this truth. And in philosophy of language, he talks about. Uh, He talks about two types of language. One is factual, scientific, which can state whatever is happening in the world. And another way, another uh, uh, type of language, that is the language of the poet. And the poet doesn't say everything clearly, but you understand from what he has said, what he has not said, so you get what is not said by seeing, by reading what he has said. So one can apprehend the unutterable here by those utterances. So here you can see the analogy with Wittgenstein. And uh, one uh, one particular analogy, which uh, he, uh, which he makes when while he was giving lectures in America, and those lectures were given in English. Uh, there he was saying that uh, fact is not adequate. Fact is not adequate to express truth. It's like a, uh, it's like a wine cup. It'll hold only a cupful of wine, and it cannot. Uh, it, it cannot hold the, the all other wine, whatever is there in the jug or in the world. And uh, he uh, delivered this lecture in 1922. And in 1929, Wittgenstein is saying in uh, a lecture on ethics that uh, a fact um, uh, like uh, he's giving the analogy like uh, it's a teacup. Uh, a teacup can contain only a cupful of water, not a gallon of water that we cannot uh, put on the on the cup. So fact is also not uh, not adequate. And here, uh, in a lecture on uh, uh, ethics, which Wittgenstein delivered in 1929, he distinguished between relative judgments of value and absolute judgments of value and uh, by this analogy he wanted to say there are things which you cannot express represent in ordinary language because uh, that's the that uh, the capacity of the cup is to is to uh, have only one cup of water not more than that so there are things which are beyond the cup
1: so the discussion the the discussion in the tractatus that's interesting to many is the connection between aesthetics, the ethical, uh, and the mystical. And of course, this idea that there's a uh, something that we have to pass over in silence. And, it, and there's suggestive remarks that, in some sense, ethics and aesthetics are, are, are part of this. Um, and one thing that I thought was interesting in your book that maybe you could elaborate on is the discussion of the rose as an object of aesthetic concern for Tagore. It was helpful for understanding connections between Wittgenstein and Tagore. So maybe you could explain that idea of the rose as an object of aesthetic concern in Tagore and how it helps with some of the ideas in the Tractatus, especially about the idea of the world, the totality of the world in in that context.
2: Yes, when he talked about, um, about the rose um, and Wittgenstein was talking about ethics and aesthetics being one both of them uh, were uh, saying something uh, that aesthetical viewing is a different kind of viewing it's not uh, normal uh, normal viewing it's viewing from eternity viewing subspecie eternitatis and uh, this is also, um, this is also very similar, in in uh, Tagore and uh, like there are parallels in Tagore and Wittgenstein. And exactly when you are talking about the rose, uh, Tagore saying that, as I was explaining while uh, um, while distinguishing between fact and truth, science and art, that the fact is an abstraction. Fact does not give you the feeling of interrelationship of the universe. So uh, think of a miser. Think of a miser. He knows for him truth is money. But this money does not contribute to the harmony of, uh, of the uh, of people of the universe. Because he is segregating himself who is full of money from those who, are, uh, who have no money. The world is uh, divisible into have's and have-nots. But if you see the thing from an aesthetic point of view, aesthetic point of view, when you see a rose, then that contributes to the harmony of the universe, to the harmony of the outer with the inner. To the it's it it's not it's not its petals, it's not its uh, color, it's not its form. It's all together it as a whole it as a whole it comes to you and it it takes you to a to a different plane where you can see that you are identical you can identical with the whole flower you can identical with the whole environment with the whole sky and like um, and it is also it, the same thing is true about music and any form of art They they, uh, take you to a different plane and from that plane, you don't see things differently, separately, separate from each other, but a unified whole. And Wittgenstein said in the Tractatus that the world as a, to view the world, the proper way of viewing is to view the world as a limited whole and viewing this limited the world as a limited whole this is viewing from eternity and this viewing from eternity helps you to see yourself to be to be related with with other things of the universe yes. then you can wonder then you can wonder at the existence of the world that i wonder that the world exists
1: Right, which is what Wittgenstein says is the, the sort of mystical attitude, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe, dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com.
1: So with this attitude of this orientation towards the world, um, we might wonder where God fits into the world for both Wittgenstein and Tagore. You were you were explaining Tagore's religious views earlier when I uh, sort of shifted our conversation a little bit. So maybe we could talk, talk about that again and, and connect this up to Wittgenstein, because he too is... Has a religious journey that he's he's known for from uh, Christianity and, and and Judaism in particular, uh, and whereas Tagore, as you were mentioning, has this journey from uh, Vaishnavism, uh, various forms of Hinduism, orthodox Hinduism, the Pramo Samaj, etc. Um, where do they think God fits into this this picture of the world and the self and our our uh, connection to things like roses and? Um, Art objects?
2: Yes, they are connected uh, in the things that um, both of them were uh, against, um, they didn't believe in institutionalization of religion. Like institution, they didn't believe in institutionalized religions. Although uh, interpreters have uh, talked about, um, have wanted to tag them as being this or as being that. But as uh, I have explored in, in my book that uh, uh, no tag is sufficient to, to capture their, uh, their journey, their journey from religiosity to spirituality. And where there is an uh, abortion to institutionalized religion, and there is this uh, feeling of interconnectedness with the universe, feeling of interconnectedness with the universe and also feeling of the world, uh, feeling of the world as a limited whole and wondering at the existence of the world. These all are, uh, it's a kind of looking into the world when when you look at it from a different perspective, from a different point of view. And this point of view for both of them is viewing sub eternity viewing from eternity and this viewing from eternity uh, that uh, that is there in in their journey from religiosity to spirituality and both of them were uh, like uh, Wittgenstein stated clearly that the religion of the future will be an ethical religion. So ethics is more important. To if you uh, behave well, and if you think of others, you if you are compassionate towards others, then that will lead you to God. And, the, and
1: that, oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to ask. And for Wittgenstein, ethics is really also about the meaning of the world too, right? Not just principles and and rules.
2: Uh, yes, in the in the notebooks, uh, in the notebooks he has written. Uh, I think uh, at least quite a few remarks about the meaning of life. He was somehow uh, more. Um, he was uh, somehow at least all those remarks make him more clear than than whatever he said in the Tractatus. So, meaning of life is something which is not in the world. So that is not something which is stateable in words, but that is something which is. The, the, the boundary of the world. And this is something which he uses this uh, particular term in the tractatus also as higher. So this is something which he calls higher. Now, what is this meaning of life? He again says that the meaning of life can be changed. The, the unhappy life, when you feel that your uh, life has no meaning, it's so unhappy, you are unhappy that life can be changed into a life that is happy then how can you uh, how can you make this change which life is a happy life and he gives the hint happy life is harmonious life that is it goes along well with the rest of the universe and again uh, which life is Uh, how can you acquire happy life? By renouncing all your amenities in, in, in in the world, amenities of the world. That is also an ethical stance, that you can be happy. Like, if you are not, if you will not be bothered, if you do not get anything, because you have transcended over your craving, you do not look, you renounce this uh, renunciation this concept is very important and uh, wittgenstein also uh, wanted to be to to go to the um, to go to monastery sometimes sorry church sometimes but he uh, later rejected this idea but still this uh, renunciation uh, is an is a very important concept and has its effect on his life also Because his life also was very simple and ascetic. So you can can have a happy life. You can have a meaningful life. Only if you look at life and world from a different point of view. From you can connect here from viewing the world subspeaky eternity. Now that is there. And uh, in Tagore, it is there that uh, what is to be desired, that has to be evaluated whether it contributes to the good of everyone, uh, then it it will be something which one ought to desire. So this distinction is the, there. Like here also I find affinities in their thinking, parallels in their thinking.
1: Yeah, and so here, here's something that strikes me about aff- the affinities that you pointed out. While Tagore is not merely... Uh, regurgitating the upanishads he's certainly influenced by them uh, and takes them takes them in creatively and wittgenstein says something interestingly he says god is how things stand and how things stand is god yes and so so does this suggest a sort of upanishadic approach and if the world is the totality of of facts but how the world is, is is contingent it could be different ways does that have implications for how we think about god
2: yes yes very good question yes uh, like if you uh, think of god from the perspective of uh, of the world as the totality of facts then he writes clearly that god does not reveal himself in the world but there is this pantheistic apparently pantheistic statement like God is how things stand and how things stand is God it seems that one can have this view only when one one can view the world as uh, view the world from eternity and there, there you can see that these two worlds apparently it seems that the Tractatus is divided into two hubs two hubs like One is uh, the world as the totality of facts, uh, where there is no value, where there is no meaning. And there is another world which is higher, which is valuable and which is meaningful. But actually, these are not uh, watertight compartments. Uh, Like these are not divided into watertight compartments. They are related. They are related in the way that one manifests the other and once you you know the uh, once you can view the world from eternity you can view the world as a miracle and you can view the from there you can uh, view the world also as as um, being contingent as the totality of facts but viewing from eternity here god does not take a a special kind of God, metaphysical God, or or philosophical God for which uh, philosophers give arguments. No, not that kind of God. It's something, it's something which is, uh, which is personal yet universal. But that is something which is not stateable in ordinary language. This is onirvachanir. That is, you cannot you cannot say it in words. So uh, I think that uh, God does not reveal himself in the world is from, uh, from the contingent point of view, from the point of view of the world. And God is how things stand. He is from the is, is, is world seen from the point of view of eternity.
1: I guess let's go back to the, uh, the question of the limits of, of language then. Doesn't Wittgenstein seem to be saying an awful lot about the unsayable? Uh, th- this is one of the questions about his his book uh, the Tractatus. It seems like there's a contradiction or some kind of tension in the idea that he's he's saying what cannot be said.
2: Oh yes he's saying he has said a lot of things which cannot be said and because of that uh, because of that uh, he, he says at the end, that to treat his book also as nonsensical uh, and um, in fact the uh, the book which i have written that also uh, that also um, is situated uh, on the on the other side of the boundary so not not it not fall into the category of uh, sensible or so in that way uh, Wittgenstein has really said a lot of things which cannot be said. So all those things which have been said in favor of his uh, thesis is also something which cannot be said from the Tractadian perspective.
1: Yeah, so so can you say a little bit then what, he, what silence means for Wittgenstein at the end of the Tractatus and how silence is present in Tagore's work as well?
2: In fact, this is very important. Both of them regarded silence as very important. But this admonition to silence for both of them is for the scientists and the philosophers. Scientists and the philosophers alike, but not for the poets, not for the musician, not for the artists, not for the sculpturists, not for the dancers, because... They have, an, they have indirect ways to manifest something which cannot be stated, for which one should remain silent. Silent means silent in, in, in factual language. But uh, these, these uh, discourses, they in fact access the beyond in indirect manner. And so I believe that accessing the beyond is not paradoxical here. Because one can access the beyond by bending its meaning, by, by being suggestive, by pointing to something uh, which, is, uh, which is not in the world.
1: And so this is the role of the aesthetic for both Wittgenstein and Tagore. Yes,
2: yes, yes.
1: yes. And so then the, towards the end of the book, you talk about uh, the play Raja, um, in Tagore, or sorry, you talk about the play Raja by Tagore, and how it was compelling for Wittgenstein. Can you say a little bit about what Wittgenstein found compelling in the play? In your hypothesis, what's going on in this play that is so important? Given what we've talked about,
2: uh, it's uh, regarding transformation. The play is about the transformation of. Uh, of the queen and uh, like it's
1: a, this is a queen in uh, a fictional queen in this a in this fictional play fictional
2: queen yep. a fictional queen and the king is uh, uh, the king is someone whom no one can see but can only feel it's an allegorical uh, play uh, allegorical play not not uh, not stating of facts kind of play and metaphorical as well so uh, the queen wants to see the king in broad daylight. But the king doesn't want to um, show uh, show her his uh, appearance in broad daylight. He used to come in uh, after dusk. And so they cannot... Um, uh, queen had one uh, uh, med servant called shurangama She can feel the king, but not the queen. The queen had, uh, the king is someone whom you cannot even say that he is a benevolent king. No one, uh, people hear about him, but no one has ever experienced the king. So the king uh, queen once uh, wanted, she in fact forced the king to appear before him in broad daylight during a, uh, a spring festival. Then um, the king warned whether uh, she can she'll be able to uh, recognize him but she was confident she said yes I will but she could not so she give uh, she gave her garland to some other king and something um, some hell broke um, into her and she had to go through sufferings and later she she had some kind of uh, awakening within himself after so much suffering and later she met, um, she met her king, well, beauty, uh, the outside beauty did not matter to her that much. That um, it seems that Wittgenstein was, uh, and it had an impact on Wittgenstein. It seems that this transformation was necessary. This transformation that is transformation in the boundary of the world, in the meaning of the world, Unhappy world can become happy, but only by transformation. So this transformation of the queen was important for Wittgenstein, and this concept of renunciation also—that you will have to, you will have to um, be over, over the, the, over the, over those things which we ordinarily desired we'll have to get ourselves to the level of something uh, which is desirable that which is desirable may be something which we usually do not desire but once you have that change of mind once you have that change transformation in your life and the world then you adore uh, then you adore that that thing which is usually not desirable which may be ugly but that does not matter that becomes beautiful to and another thing is that also reflects the philosophy of harmony that uh, truth like beauty and uh, ugliness pleasure and pain they are not in the in that way binary in the sense they get uh, they get harmonized in a in a you know they get harmonized in a different worldview, say it viewing from eternity.
1: Yeah, and so there's there's a lot of talk of um, ang- anxiety and also despair in both Wittgenstein, um, but this is not inconsistent with the idea of harmony. So the idea of uh, a, a, an anxiety about knowing God or a despairing yes, yes. kind of worry about the state of the world, that is still consistent with this idea of harmony.
2: Huh. Uh, this is not inconsistent. Yes, this is not inconsistent because accepting the agony, uh, accept the agony, anxiety, despair of the moment, we can uh, we can raise ourselves above these above these things.
1: Wonderful. So that's um, that's. This has all been very uh, illuminating in terms of understanding the. Ideas in Tagore and how they are, if not directly uh, influential for Wittgenstein, because of course we can't know that. And you're not arguing that in your book. At least there's, like you're saying, this interesting convergence in the ideas of these two thinkers. So I, I appreciate you walking us through through their ideas. Um, in the time we have left, we're, we're coming coming to time. Um, can you tell us what you're working on right now since you have, have completed this book? Uh,
2: yes. At present, um, uh, I'm, I'm not working on uh, Wittgenstein, though I have, uh, um, have an intention to do it in the future. At present, the last two years, um, I was uh, within a project of uh, Bengali philosophy, philo- Philosophy of Bengali in nineteenth century, and uh, I concentrated on Pandit Ishar Chandra there are others. and other. But uh, it was uh, his bicentenary he was born in 1820 and it's unbelievable the work he has done in, in his lifetime and uh, I was uh, finding out uh, on the on the secular uh, humanism uh, which he wanted to inculcate uh, in, in the society in the, in the society by bringing in reforms, reforms in education, reforms in social practices, uh, he wanted to bring it, but there are uh, like there are objections, kind of uh, thing that people think that uh, these um, 19th century Bengali thinkers they all are uh, they all are um, like they're uh, they all are influenced by the logical positivists, their wisdom is borrowed, their wisdom is not original, etc. But as I'm going through his own writings, his own library, I can see that he was really a, a, a man, uh, he was really a man of philosopher and a social reformer, and which needs, uh, we should explore him more. And I'm doing that at present.
1: Hmm. For for people who, like myself, cannot read uh, in the original languages here in Bengali, how um, how can we come to to know about Bengali philosophers? Is is there material that's been translated?
2: Uh yes, yes, there are um, not much, not much though. Um, these days, um, some some um, things are getting translated, and you can get English translation of Bongkim Thai. Uh, At least his dharma taktor, like his view on religion. That is also a very interesting view on religion, uh, which he wanted to advocate, but somehow somehow it did not materialize. But the content is uh, really interesting, very interesting.
1: Okay so so we should uh, I should start start taking a look and see what I can find in in translation until such time as, uh, as, as you and others can make it more available to, to those of us who unfortunately don't have as, as many languages under our belt. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Uh,
2: thank you also. and I have seen your CV. you have done a lot in Indian philosophy.
1: Oh well thank you. thank you. I, I very much appreciate your appreciate your time.
2: Thank you.